Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So this episode is one that I've been really excited about, mostly because the topic is extremely fascinating to me. Here we're going to be talking about psychological barriers to confronting collapse. And Corey, as you and I were diving into this and having conversations about it, we even joked like, maybe we need to someday have another podcast where we discuss psychology and philosophy because we were just so fascinated. Yeah, I if you had asked me a decade ago about philosophy or if I was interested in learning about philosophy, I would have laughed at you. Like for whatever reason, growing up, it just seems so boring. And to me, it seemed kind of pointless. But I will admit over the last couple of years, for whatever reason, that has just changed. It's flipped in me. And suddenly the idea of these different philosophies and just talking about morality and ethics and all these different conundrums and questions, doing research into biases, you know, as Kellen and I were talking about this episode, we just kept asking each other questions and riffing off of each other. And obviously, we're just amateurs when it comes to philosophy, but it was really fun. And so I also am really excited about this episode, because I think that what we're going to talk about today is really important. I think there are a lot of things that everyone could take from this, that they could both see about themselves, learn about themselves and recognize when these blockades, these biases are present in themselves, and they can also recognize them in other people, which is really important when you're trying to communicate with others about such heavy topics like collapse. Yeah, it's not that there aren't any solutions to collapse. It's that the solutions are 
so unlikely. And the reason why those solutions are unlikely is because of human psychology. It's because of the biases and the fallacies and the syndromes. It's the thought processes of people individually and collectively that stand in our way, right? If we could get everyone on the same page, we could actually work towards solutions. And so it really is, I think, one of the most important things to understand, especially if we want to try to make a difference, whether it's, like you said, personally or on a small scale with individuals we talk to, or if we're hoping to try to make a large scale impact, it's incredibly relevant. So it makes me think of something from a movie that I really enjoy. I've always really liked Sherlock Holmes. I like the Benedict Cumberbatch series, but I even really enjoy the couple of movies with Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes. Anyways, in the second one of those, which is called Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, there's this point where Sherlock Holmes has confronted the villain, Professor Moriarty, and it's kind of like this small moment of triumph or seemingly a small moment of triumph like hey we're not going to let you start a world war and it's a bit unnerving how calm professor moriarty seems that his plot has failed and then he delivers this line here's the actual clip from the movie you see hidden within the unconscious is an insatiable desire for conflict So you're not fighting me so much as you are the human condition. All I want to do is own the bullets and the bandages. War on an industrial scale is inevitable. They'll do it themselves within a few years. All I have to do is wait. Anyways, I don't know if I summarized that very well. And if you haven't seen the movie, (laughs) go watch it because there's some other great developments in the plot after that. But it's this idea that, like he's saying, sooner or later, war on an industrial scale is going to happen. That's his claim because he feels like it's just human nature. And sometimes when we talk about collapse, that is what it feels like. We're not fighting the oil companies. We're not fighting, you know, a, a certain political leader feels like we're fighting human nature. And as I've discussed this with you, Corey, I appreciate you've talked about how like it's within human nature to be prepared and resilient and to mitigate the effects and and to find solutions. Like that's also, there's the good side of human nature and kind of the bad side. But the point is there are certain things about the way we are wired, about the way our brains are built that makes it difficult for us to accept collapse makes it difficult for us to take any action regarding collapse. Yes. A quick note on that. I think that with human nature, I think there's obviously multiple facets to human nature, some of it positive, some of it negative. I just think that we happen to live in systems that promote some of those darker sides of human nature of selfishness and greed. But I do believe that it's certainly within our power to be able to recognize what those are and to be able to overcome them. So a couple of terms that are worthwhile to be familiar with, but we're not going to dive into in a lot of detail here. You know, one of them, for example, is hyperbolic discounting. And that's just this natural tendency we have as humans to feel like the present is more important than the future. 
And that's one of those things that like has helped us survive. You know, you, you need to be focused on what is going to try to kill you or eat you or what you're going to eat right now, not later. But it kind of holds us back from addressing things that feel distant or that take a long time to play out as a threat. It's the idea of prioritizing short-term gains over long-term survival, really. Yeah, exactly. Another one you've likely heard of is the bystander effect. And it's just this idea that we tend to believe someone else is going to deal with a crisis. You know, there are tragic examples of somebody screaming for help as they get mugged in a crowded city street, you know, or, or maybe they're in the alleyway, but there's people all around in their own apartments that can hear what's happening. And yeah, some of it is fear to go confront the situation, but a lot of it is just that everyone thinks somebody else is going to take care of it. You hear that a lot as well with first aid situations. If there's a car wreck or something, you never say somebody call 911. You pick someone specifically and say, hey, you call 911. Because if you say somebody call 911, everyone's going to assume that someone else is doing it. Yeah. And again, this is something you could argue has been beneficial. You know, in ancient human history, it wouldn't make sense for everybody to go handle the threat. Usually there was somebody designated. It was understood that was their role. So just a quick example of how this applies to collapse is to say that somebody might not act because they expect that someone else has control of the situation, basically. And when everybody thinks that, nobody's doing anything to make any conditions improve. Yeah, we might just assume like, yeah, our government leaders must be doing something about it. Or these scientists or these activists, like somebody's taking care of it. And that leads us to do nothing about it. There's something called the sunk cost fallacy. You see this in business all the time where, you know, uh, an organization pursues a certain course of action and they put a lot of money and resources toward it, which makes it so they're not willing to abandon it even when it's failing. Right. Someone's invested 10 years in a relationship with a spouse and they don't want to let go even though they should because they've invested so much time in it, right? It's this idea that you don't want to let go of something because you've already put so much time, effort, or energy into it. And I think that's something, you know, a nation builds an amount of infrastructure that they can't maintain. The wise thing to do would be to scrap that infrastructure and build something more sustainable. But the powers that be in that nation say, we've spent 100 years building this. We've spent $20 billion or whatever it is. We've put so much into it. It's better to just maintain what we have than to, to build something better. Yeah, exactly. So even as we're just touching on a few of these, you can start to see how big of an obstacle each one is when you're trying to get people to confront collapse. But I think there's some other ones that are even more intriguing in my mind and, and more relevant. And we'll dig a little bit deeper on those. Yeah. So the first one that we want to talk about here that we're going to dive into is normalcy bias. And normalcy bias has been called the most dangerous bias that exists. It's basically the idea that life is going to continue as we currently know it. Basically that tomorrow is going to be the same as today or as yesterday. Because the human individual experience is so small when compared to larger timescales, it's really hard for people to be able to understand that things that have happened in the past when they weren't around are likely going to happen again. People hear about emergencies happening in other places, but they don't expect it can actually happen to themselves. They expect business as usual forever. And this is a real 
studied phenomenon. And a result of this, a consequence of this, is that it causes people to seize up during emergencies or it prevents them from preparing mentally or physically for emergencies in the first place. There are a lot of studied examples of this. Some would be evacuation efforts when there is a wildfire or a volcanic eruption, hurricanes. Many people refuse to leave. And a big reason for that is because they are suffering from normalcy bias, thinking that nothing can happen to them or nothing will happen to them. One study shows that 70% of all people suffer normalcy bias during disasters. You can think of examples like Pompeii, where the citizens sat and watched as the volcano exploded and it wasn't like they were frozen in an instant, right? Things happened slower and they refused to react. During the 9-11 attacks, one study suggested that it took people an average of six minutes to begin leaving the building after feeling the plane crash. People stood around, they talked, they discussed maybe what was going on, but even after being told they needed to evacuate because there was a plane crash, many people refused or they sought out other sources of information to confirm what they had heard. People interviewed since the attacks reported being convinced that everything was fine, there was no need to panic, they could slowly walk down the stairs, and it would just be a minor inconvenience in their day. There was a 2001 study that suggested that when people are asked to leave in anticipation of a disaster, most check with four or more sources of information before deciding on what to do, even when they're told that the emergency is imminent and that they are in immediate danger. This has been used to describe why so many Jews refused to leave Germany and Austria under Nazi occupation until it was too late and they didn't have the option to. It also can describe why so many people in Ukraine didn't heed warnings about an impending Russian attack. And problems with normalcy bias can be further complicated by the idea of the boy who cried wolf, right? You think about Ukraine, and if people are already suffering a normalcy bias, but there's also this idea that, oh, we've been warned about this happening before, or we've seen Russia build up on the border before and nothing came of it. And so it enforces or reinforces that normalcy bias to say, bad things don't happen to me. And I think it's pretty obvious to relate this to why somebody might not take action or accept that collapse is a possibility. Yeah, the way you describe it, it's almost like it's just hard to even accept something that's disruptive or different from what we're used to. And, you know, our brains are efficient machines. Like, it makes sense that we base our expectations for the future on what has happened to us historically. And so if day-to-day, minute-to-minute, I've always seen things look a certain way, it makes sense to me that it's almost like a, a shock that I can't comprehend when suddenly they look different. It's interesting to me to think, you know, the studies that you shared, there were certain averages and there was a certain percentage of people that acted in accordance with this. But the fact that there were outliers and there there were people that didn't really struggle with that normalcy bias makes me think there's a way to program ourselves to be a little bit more flexible and adaptable and reactive when a change comes our way. Yeah, and I think part of that is is just being willing to accept that the future is not always the same as the present. And if we're willing to look historically, we'll be able to see what the future can be like, right? There's there's cycles throughout history that show. And so if someone says, oh, there's no way there's going to be a severe economic crash and that we'll live through a depression. Well, just look at all the times it's happened throughout history 
and you should be able to see that, that it's very possible. One interesting thing about normalcy bias is that it applies equally to large scale problems like systemic collapse as equally as it does to immediate short-term unexpected catastrophes. There's one example of normalcy bias that I have found fascinating, and it's that there was a plane crash in 1977 between two airlines on a runway in Spain. There was heavy fog. One plane was trying to take off, didn't heed the directions correctly, and crashed into an airplane that was still taxiing on the runway. Everybody on the plane that was taking off died instantly in the impact. But the plane that was hit, only part of the plane was severely damaged. The rest of the plane was fine. However, there was a fire that began. Something like half of the people on the plane unbuckled their seatbelts, stood up, and walked off the plane. The other half stayed on the plane and perished in the fire. And it was said from people who were interviewed who walked off the plane that the people around them just sat in sort of a shocked silence and watched as everything unfolded. All they would have had to do is unbuckle, get up, and walk out. But normalcy bias, this idea that this isn't really happening, what's going on right now is not real, it's not happening to me, or maybe the thought that, like you mentioned earlier, someone else will take care of this, someone will come grab me, tell me what to do. They were unprepared. And it's a belief that without normalcy bias, there would be many less deaths or severe injuries in accidents that happen every single day. All right, so let's talk about the next one, and this is going to sound familiar. It's something called confirmation bias. One definition is that it's the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. So you may have heard of two different terms related to this. There's assimilation and there's accommodation. And assimilation is the process of using or transforming the environment so that it can be placed in pre-existing cognitive structures. For example, driving down the road with my two-year-old who points out the window at a cow and says, doggy. And we might even say, that's a cow. And then again, my two-year-old points and says, doggy. Basically, it's this idea that you don't change your perspective, your point of view to accommodate more information. You just adapt the information to fit your frame of mind or your perspective. So there's assimilation, which we just described. Accommodation is the process of changing cognitive structures in order to accept something from the environment. So, you know, people form opinions and once those opinions are established, they have a very difficult time processing information in a rational, unbiased way. In other words, I'm only really going to hear or accept information that aligns with the opinions that I already have. And you might think like, why? Why is that how we work as people? Part of the reason is it's just efficient. Like we need to be able to process information quickly to protect ourselves from harm. And so if every single piece of information that came our way, we were having to put a lot of energy toward evaluating it, it wouldn't be super efficient. Instead, it's easier to just immediately discount it if it's not in alignment with what we already believe and accept it if it is. Another reason is that it protects our self-image. Like we as people want to believe that we are intelligent and that we're well-informed. And so it's a shot to our self-esteem if suddenly we're hearing something that proves that we're wrong. Yeah, this conversation gives me flashbacks to our episode that we did on echo chambers. Because that's basically what an echo chamber is. It's a, an area where you are getting those positive 
feedbacks on your confirmation bias continuously, basically putting yourself in a place where you know you're going to be able to hear echoed back at you your own beliefs. It's a huge reason for polarization because we put ourselves in these areas where everyone seems to agree with us and therefore anyone who doesn't in other arenas, we view them as the others. It also goes a bit hand in hand with normalcy bias because if I have come to a conclusion, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, that the future is going to be the same as the past, then nothing that you say is going to convince me otherwise. And instead, I'm going to reaffirm my own beliefs by engaging in content that tells me I'm right. So engaging in greenwashing or the belief in some sort of utopian future due to new technologies, things like that, that tell me, you know what, you're right. Things do just get better. Tomorrow is just as comfortable as today is. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about how it affects the way we think and how we accept information, but not surprisingly, it directly impacts our behaviors. So for example, a person might think that if you are tall, you are more intelligent. And so then they they might emphasize every time that they meet a tall person, how intelligent they are, and then find something intelligent about them and use that, like you said, as kind of a positive feedback. And that affects how they treat tall people and how they treat short people. One thing that's fascinating is, is there's been a lot of research on this. It has even shown that like medical doctors are just as likely to have confirmation bias as anybody else. That, you know, they might have a hunch of what, what the diagnosis is going to be before they really start treatment. And then even as evidence surfaces that their initial hunch wasn't right, they, they still don't accept it. They came in with an expectation that I've figured it out. Here's what is wrong with this patient. And they only embrace the information that backs that up. I think the issue highlighted here to me is that that confirmation bias is even more reinforced. It's required because they're being paid to be right. It's not necessarily just about pride and, and self-image. It's about their occupation and, and earning a salary. So I think of politicians. I think of scientists. And I think of business people who back up claims that they've made that may be incorrect in order to continue in their field of study with high marks or whatever it is, even though they're digging themselves into a deeper, deeper hole and leading society astray. Yeah. And it, it's a major contributing factor, what you're talking about here, but really everyone's guilty of it, right? In the, in the case of a doctor, they have this confirmation bias. They're looking for something that backs up what they think the situation is. Same thing goes for the patient. Patient comes in and they will be more likely to agree with a diagnosis that supports whatever they're hoping for or whatever they think is wrong with them. I feel like we saw so much of this in the heat of the pandemic where there was so much information going one way or another. Somebody who thinks vaccines are extremely harmful sees a person in a white lab coat say, vaccines are terrible. And they're like, there it is. See, even though there can be a hundred other videos put right in front of their face of other people in white lab coats saying vaccines are not harmful. I remember at one point, Corey, you and I were kind of laughing about uh, the craze that people had to go out and purchase like horse dewormers. And there was so much evidence that that was not going to be helpful. It was only going to be harmful. And yet it's almost like no matter how much evidence you throw at somebody who already has that opinion, they're only going to 
listen to what you have to say if it supports their point of view. And, you know, it's important to to point out that, like you said, everybody suffers from confirmation bias. You and I do. Collapse aware people do as well. It's not like you've become collapse aware, so no more confirmation bias. It works the other way as well. And going back to your ivermectin example, you know, there were people that would make good points about ivermectin, not as it relates to being an effective medicine against COVID-19, but but pointing out something like, well, everyone's talking about how ivermectin is a horse dewormer, but it's also used in humans for other things as well. But to someone who just wants to make fun of someone for using ivermectin, they're going to ignore that fact and pick the facts that suit them and their narrative, which is that you're pumping yourself full of horse dewormer. So again, it's just the idea of that polarization that happens because you create this dichotomy where there's two sides and you are going to prove that you're right and you're going to find the facts that prove you are and discard the ones that don't. You know, a lot of these biases that we'll be talking about here overlap and fit with one another. You think about you and I, Corey, who are now almost two years into doing this podcast. We've spent a lot of time and done a lot of research. It can be easy if we're not careful for us to just cherry pick the information that supports what we're trying to say. And we've tried to do these episodes where we're looking at the other side and saying like, here's why others claim that we're wrong and where that's valid and where it's not. But like going back to that sunk cost syndrome, we've put a lot of effort into this. And so there is some motivation there to only look at the things other people say in order to prove them wrong or to discredit their argument. Right. If we were given proof tomorrow, you and I, that collapse was not going to happen, that there was some solution and that that solution could be implemented and would be implemented, would we accept that and present that on the podcast and say, well, this will be the last episode. Thanks for the two years, everybody. Or would we fall to our confirmation bias and work to discredit that even if there were plenty of facts to support it? I like to hope that we would be humble enough to admit that and move on. But human nature is a strong thing, so it's hard to say exactly what the outcome of that would be. This one's going to be a little bit shorter, but I still think it's really fascinating. I actually have a lot of research left that I want to do on this one. It's called hypernormalization. And this is not necessarily a, a philosophical term. It's a newer term. It was coined by a Russian historian named Alexei Yurchak. And he basically used it to explain the pervasive feeling during the end of the Soviet Union and in 2016, a documentary was made by Adam Curtis using that same title. Before I move on, I do want to call out and thank one of our patrons who actually referred us to this documentary. So thank you, Christine, for sending that over. I have to admit, I have not yet watched the documentary. I have done some research on what it's about, and I hope to get to it soon because the concept is fascinating. Basically, here's what Adam Curtis said and why he chose to do his documentary on this idea. Here's what he said. What Alexei Yurchak said, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, was that in the 80s, everyone from the top to the bottom of Soviet society knew that it wasn't working, knew that it was corrupt, knew that the bosses were looting the system, knew that the politicians had no alternative vision, and they knew that the bosses knew they knew. Everyone knew it was fake. But because no one had any alternative vision for a different kind of society, they just accepted this sense of total fakeness as normal. And this historian, Alexei Yurchak, coined the phrase hypernormalization to describe that feeling. So there's Adam Curtis describing this idea that everybody knew that what was going on 
during the end of the Soviet era, they knew that it was fake. Not only that they knew that it was fake, but they knew that everyone else knew. And they knew that the bosses knew. But nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. Because there was no alternative vision for a different future. At least one that they felt like they could all act on together. And so this again mixes a little bit with what we talked about earlier, which was the bystander effect of thinking that maybe someone else would handle it. Like, we know this isn't good. We know this is all fake, but I'm just going to keep doing it because I don't know what else to do. And so the documentary that Adam Curtis created, he's trying to portray that that same thing is happening today with all of our systems. And it reminds me a lot of Bo Burnham's song from Inside called That Funny Feeling. And this idea of derealization, sort of knowing that everything that's happening around you, the system that you're living in is manufactured, it's being manipulated, and feeling that disconnection from it, or that disconnection from yourself within it, and knowing that there's nothing you can really do to change it. So the overall point here is that even knowing and recognizing that things are messed up, that we're living in a way that's completely unsustainable, it's all fake, it isn't enough to actually cause change just to know it, even if everybody knows it. Because if you don't really have a great answer for how to fix it, nobody's going to take real action to make it happen. And in reality, people are happy to ignore the fakeness of it or ignore the wrongness of it because they're comfortable within it. And they'll basically ride that wave as long as they can until it will inevitably come crashing down. What I'd be curious to hear about, and I wonder if this is touched upon in the documentary, is how people reacted who knew it was fake all along during the Soviet Union, who knew the problems that they were facing and didn't do anything about it, and how they felt after the collapse had happened. You know, were they pleading innocence and in, in not knowing? Were they pleading ignorance? Or did they admit, yeah, we knew this was going to happen all along. It happened, but there was just simply nothing that could be done. So that idea of hypernormalization leads really well into what's called the well-informed futility syndrome. And I will just say that this is probably something that every one of you listening has felt. And in fact, many of you have reached out to us, sent us messages in one form or another, and expressed this feeling. So the term was first identified in 1973. There was an American psychologist named Gerhard Wiebe, and the observation was that Americans were sitting on their couches watching real-time news of the Vietnam War, and they're seeing just how terrible and awful, like the atrocities of war, and especially when you think of the Vietnam War, the kind of things that were happening. But the more they saw and learned about the terrible situation and the complexity of it and the messy issues surrounding it, the more they felt this like paralyzed sense of futility. Like here's this terrible thing going on on the other side of the planet. And, and there's just kind of this sense of it's overwhelming, not only how awful it is, but also how little I can do about it. And what we hear so often from people who are learning about collapse, and I know I've felt the same way at times, it's like, what difference does it make what I do, whether on the positive or the negative side, right? Like, what difference does it make if I burn a lot of gasoline or if I throw my trash on the ground? Like, in the grand scheme of things, I'm powerless to do anything about the outcome. Or on the other side, like, what difference does it make for me to try to conserve water or to try to get politicians to listen or whatever, because it's this big, complex 
awful global situation. And so I think the syndrome is aptly named. There's this feeling of futility. And it's interesting because this feeling of futility goes hand in hand with denial. Like denial happens when the quantity or the severity of the information is just too much to bear. We can't accept it. And we instinctively as people try to avoid things that cause fear or guilt. And so I'm going to read one part of an article. It's talking about the author of a book in which this idea is discussed. It says, as Sandra Steingraber notes so succinctly in her powerful book, Raising Elijah, if we are told we have a dire environmental problem, such as mass extinctions or melting ice caps, but the proposed solutions seem so trivial, such as buying new light bulbs or recycling office paper, then the discontinuity between the problem and the solution provides the opportunity to conclude that the problem is not so dire. Denial combines with futility, she writes, to create a retreat into silent paralysis. There's a lot we could talk about here, but essentially when people feel this well-informed futility syndrome, usually the result is paralysis, you know, inaction, and often like this just sense of dread and depression. So when you say that people reach out to us expressing this sort of feeling, how does one express this in a single sentence, would you say? Yeah, maybe a summary would be something like, I'm not going to try to change any of my behaviors because it won't make any difference anyways. That's on the larger scale when you feel like you can't impact the overall problem. Maybe on a personal level, you know, Corey, you and I have heard things like, I'm not going to go to college. I'm not going to save for the future because there's no future. There's nothing I can do about that. So this is the first time in this entire conversation that we've had. I'm going to ask maybe a little bit more of like a personal question, but what's your response to someone who says that? Is it true? You know, can they make an impact by not throwing their trash on the ground? Are they changing anything? Is it morally wrong for them to do that? I know some of our listeners right now are listening and say that morals don't exist, but what when we talk about these being barriers to confronting collapse, it sounds like this one is after collapse has already been confronted head on as far as acceptance goes, and the next part is on action. Do you think that these trivial actions could make a difference? You know, there's a really kind of cheesy story. I don't know what you'd call it, like a little fable or a parable where all these starfish are washed up on a beach and somebody's walking along, tossing them in one by one. If they remain on the beach, they're going to dry up and they're going to die. But if you throw them back in the ocean, they have a chance to survive. So person number two comes along and says, wait a minute, there are thousands, if not millions of these starfish on the beach. There's no way you're going to be able to help all of them. And the first person, person A, picks one up, throws it into the ocean and says, yeah, but at least I helped that one. I think even if collapse weren't an impending reality, like any large scale problem is probably not something that any of us can change by ourselves. We can only make a small impact to either try to fix the problem or try to at least reduce some suffering for ourselves or for other people. And I think there's some worthwhile purpose in that. I think everybody needs to have a sense of purpose. I get it. Like I've had times, especially when I started learning about all this from you, Corey, where life kind of seemed dark and dreary. But then for me personally, when I was able to get to a point of resolve where I said, okay, well, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen, but it doesn't mean 
that myself and my family and my friends have to suffer the maximum amount. And if I can at least be kind to somebody else or be prepared with supplies to help somebody in the right moment of need, or if I can help educate somebody, or if I can make sure that my family isn't going to suffer as extreme of consequences, or, you know, if there's some way that I think I can, at least in a small way, impact the problem itself and help us avoid the worst consequences of collapse, like even us doing this podcast and educating so that there can be steps taken, hopefully by every person listening. I mean, that's a long way of me just saying like, who cares if you can't change the whole thing? It's like, suck it up. That's the reality. But at least, you know, don't fall on the ground and stay in the fetal position. Like you can still do something and any impact that's positive is worthwhile. The reason I ask is you see a wide range of responses to this question amongst collapse aware people. You know, on one end, there might be a lot of judgment from people saying, you're living a certain way, you are the problem, you're part of the problem, you should be doing every single thing possible to lower your carbon footprint, and you get where I'm going with that. And then on the other end, you've got the complete opposite with a separate group of people that are completely embrace nihilism and hedonism and, and just saying, screw it all, I'm just going to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I'm just going to enjoy the time that I got and I'm going to use up every resource and do whatever I can. I don't care because I can't make a difference either way. I'm just going to enjoy myself. Kellen and I are not here to prescribe. I don't think we either of us are saying anybody should be a certain way. But I agree, Kellen, that I think on a personal level, every small act that I can do to lessen the suffering of someone else is worthwhile. I'm personally of the mindset in agreeing that the the changes that I make are not going to impact the overall level of whether or not we collapse or how hard we collapse. And if someone looked at my lifestyle, they would not be like, oh, he's a minimalist who lives in a hole in the ground so that he's not emitting any fossil fuels for sure. So I'm not going to claim that at all. Yeah, I think it's more just about taking any action that's deliberate. And like you said, I'm not here to judge on whether you're taking the right action for you or not. That's up to you. But I think about a message we received from one of our listeners not too long ago where they said, you know, I know I probably should save more of my money. And, you know, when I do spend money, spend more of it on like food storage and preparedness items. But I've just chosen this last year to travel a little bit more, to take my family on vacations. And when I read that, I was thinking like, good for you. That's awesome. Whereas we've also had others reach out to us and say, hey, because of what I'm learning here, I've been saving a lot more money and I've been spending the money that I do spend on food storage and other preparedness items. And I'm over here thinking like, awesome, good for you. Like those are two opposite approaches. But I think the point is just to be deliberate and take some sort of action based on the information you have instead of just freezing up in a state of paralysis. Perfectly well said. Yeah, that sums up something that I think I had been thinking but didn't know how to word that the idea is that you are acting in what you think is best and not just, like you said, laying down in the fetal position and giving up. Okay, so moving on to the next one. This is a metaphor that is widely known, and it's the idea of a frog in boiling water. And I'm sure you know the metaphor, basically this idea that if you put a frog in boiling water, it will jump right out. However, if you put it in tepid water and slowly increase the temperature, that the frog will boil alive, never realizing that the temperature changed. So first thing to point out, 
the metaphor is completely bogus as far as its accuracy in a real life application. Um, there's been multiple studies done, <laughs> not by me. I love all living creatures and would never want to hurt one. But if you throw a frog in boiling water, it will likely die from its injuries <laughs> and not be able to jump out because it will severely disable it. On the other end, a frog who is put in tepid water will jump out once the temperature becomes uncomfortable. So we've used this metaphor a lot on the podcast because it's a great metaphor. So we're just going to pretend that I didn't just say that and that and that it's real. Hey man, sunk costs. We've already invested in that metaphor. Confirmation bias. Don't tell me it's wrong. Yeah, that's right. We're just going to double down on this. But no, it, it's a good idea, at least in the way that we think about it, as far as it being this sort of complacency, a lack of being alert to slow changes that are happening over time. In psychology, the metaphor of the frog in the boiling pot of water is comparable to something called the Sorites paradox. And what this paradox basically says is, if on one end you have a single grain of sand, and on the other end you have a heap of sand, a large pile of sand, you can clearly say that one of those is a heap of sand and the other is not. If you add one grain of sand at a time to your existing grain of sand, it still is not a heap. When you add another and there are three grains of sand, you still don't have a heap of sand, so on and so forth. Continuing down that path of adding one grain of sand at a time, you technically never have a heap of sand because one grain of sand cannot make the difference. But eventually, you've added so many grains of sand that your pile is as big as the original heap, if not bigger. So is it a heap now, right? And if it is, when did it become a heap? And you can say the same thing about any other type of slow continuum of change. You think about like a, a color gradient that goes from one color to another across a very slow transition. And if you were to say, okay, where did the color change? It's impossible to pinpoint. The point being that, yeah, things change very slowly over time. There are complexities to those changes. And it's hard for the human mind to be able to notice as those changes are happening. For example, with climate change, a lot of people don't necessarily recognize that heat waves, wildfires, flooding events are happening at a rate much faster than before. And say 10, 20, 30 years from now, when it is absolutely catastrophic, many people may say, when did this happen? When did it get so bad? And there is no place at which we can pinpoint that because that change happened slowly over time. And it's tough because when things happen gradually, in some ways that's great because it gives us time to adapt. But in adapting, it becomes a new normal for us and we don't see the situation for just how dire it is. We don't take the action that we should. Yeah, it's like if there's a concrete set of actions that needs to be taken, at what point in the continuum do you take that action? That action might require serious sacrifice or a serious investment, and it would need to be done all at once. So at any point along that continuum, taking that action might seem overly drastic or dramatic. It might seem like you're overreacting, and yet by the time you needed to have done it, it will be too late, and you can't take the action anymore. Your grain of sand has become a heap without realizing it. Great. So let's jump right to the next of these that we want to discuss, and that is survivorship bias. A really good example of this is a story that gets told all over the place. It's on the internet. If it's on the internet, it must be true. <laughs> yeah, the, the 
point is the details might be stretched or fabricated. I don't know. But as an example, it proves a point. The story is that it's 1943, American bomber planes are suffering great losses to the Germans. And there's a group that is in charge of trying to figure out how they can make these planes more resilient, you know, or better protected from attacks. And they're looking at the data from all the planes that come back and they're seeing where the bullet holes are. And there's kind of these clusters, these areas where they're finding more bullet holes than other parts of the plane. And that they're saying, we need to reinforce, we need to put more armor on those spots because those are the spots that are getting hit by more bullets. But then according to the account or myth, whatever it is, <laughs> Abraham Wald, a mathematician, comes along, takes a look at the data, and says, no, you need to reinforce the areas of the plane where you're not seeing any bullet holes. Because the planes that get shot there are the ones that are not making it back. So survivorship bias is a form of selection bias. You know, that there can be certain aspects of the data that are ignored simply because of the examples or the data that's being presented to us. There are so many examples of this, and they're kind of fun, so I want to step through just a couple of them. I'll read this. It says, In a study performed in 1987, it was reported that cats who fall from less than six stories and are still alive have greater injuries than cats who fall from higher than six stories. Now, after this report, <laughs> there were all these theories around it. One of them is that it was proposed that cats reach terminal velocity after riding themselves, like kind of rebalancing themselves at about five stories. And after this point, they relax and that leads to less severe injuries in cats that have fallen from six stories or more. Anyways, finally, an idea was presented, <laughs> which is that cats that die in falls are less likely to be brought to a veterinarian than injured cats. And thus many of the cats killed in falls from higher buildings are not reported in studies of the subject. How do I get a job reporting on the number of cat injuries from from tall buildings? Is that like something that appeals to you? Yeah, it just sounds like a real area of, of passion for me. Another really common example of this, Corey, I'm sure you've seen this so many times, is when people talk about like products in our day and age and they just say, hey, they don't make them like they used to. And usually somebody is then saying like, my brother has a lawnmower that used to be my dad's and it used to be my grandpa's. So look, like they used to make these products that last forever. But it's just another example of survivorship bias because we're not seeing the thousands and millions of products that didn't last. <laughs> we're only seeing the examples of those that did. Which by the way, at one point in an episode, we spoke about planned obsolescence and, and there is some reality to that. But I'll give just one more example. Let's say three of five students with the best college grades all went to the same high school. You might think like, wow, that high school is incredible. Like, what are they doing differently? But it might just turn out that they're a much larger high school. You know, I think of people who point to a college dropout who's now a billionaire and they all want to get advice from that person. Like, what did you do? How did you do this? And yet there might be millions of college dropouts who were just as determined and it didn't work out for them. And the majority of billionaires might be college graduates. Right. So we're just making this correlation in a place that it shouldn't be. So you've just given several super interesting examples and they 
they all kind of have to do with how we look at data from surveys and studies and reports and how these biases can show themselves in that data. But I think if we look at it from a really simple approach, a person can experience survivorship bias by viewing their own chances of success through the lens of the stories that they've heard about successful people in the past. You know, we fill ourselves with these fiction stories in Hollywood, and every one of them has a hero. Or in most of them, the protagonist makes it through the end of the movie through some miraculous way, right? And that is the type of bias that can make us think that even if we're going to face difficult issues in the future, that we'll be the one to survive it. If normalcy bias is saying nothing bad will happen, survivorship bias is saying, sure, something bad may happen, but I'm going to get through it okay because that's just what happens. People just get through it, especially the main character of the story, and I'm the main character of my story. This is especially dangerous because it can put an unrealistic expectation of success on someone, and it can lower the chances of them taking real actions that they need to take in order to give themselves the best chances, right? It's an overestimating of one's own abilities, which can be fatal to a person's chances of successes at all. Yeah. And there's a lot of applications here. You're describing one. Really, it's any time that anybody's looking at a limited selection of data. I'll give one more example. And I think it relates to what you're saying here, Corey. Imagine for just a minute that you get a letter in the mail and it says, invest in stock A, it's going to go up. You're probably not going to invest in it, but you'll probably go watch it. Maybe you might be intrigued. Let's say you see that it goes up and then you get another letter the next day and it says, don't invest in stock B, it's going to go down. So you keep your eyes on it and sure enough, it goes down. And then the next day, invest in stock C, it's going to go up. And now you're really interested and you see that, yes, it goes up. So the next time they give you a letter and it tells you to invest in stock D, you're going to want to do it. Apparently, this was actually a tactic used at one point where some sort of investment financial company, I'm not sure who they were, but they picked like a series of different stocks and they sent out all these different combinations, right? They started with the first one, stock A. They've got 10,000 people to 5,000 of them. They say, invest in stock A, it's going to go up. And to the other 5,000, they say, don't invest in stock A, it's going to go down. Well, when it goes up, then to those 5,000 people, they send the second letter and they, you know, they say to half of them, don't invest in stock B, it's going to go down. And to the other half, invest in it, it's going to go up. When it goes down, all the people that got that letter, they send them the third one. So to those people, they're like, this group is amazing. They're predicting everything right. When in reality, that's not the case. The example you brought up of not only data, but also just fictional information that we're presented with. If over and over again, we're being told when a situation gets bad, here's what somebody does with grit and determination and they make it through just fine. And we see that again and then it's confirmed again and then again, whether they are fictional accounts or non-fictional. Again, we're just not seeing all the countless other examples of times when it didn't work out that way. So it's definitely a bias that skews our perception. Okay, so moving on to the last one, this is going to be pretty quick, but it refers back to something we've mentioned a couple times in this episode, and it's really at the heart of, of human nature, and it's this idea of something called rational egoism, and it applies to just egoism as well, but it's this idea that 
human nature is for people to act in their own self-interest and that really they're only going to do something if they see that it will benefit themselves. And this is the opposite of altruism, which is basically the idea that somebody does something for somebody else with no selfish concern, and they're just doing it for the well-being of others. And there have been discussions or, or arguments in philosophy around whether altruism is even possible. And the reason for that being that when I do something nice for somebody else, I feel happy that I did that, right? And because I feel happy, was it actually altruistic? The next time I do something nice for somebody, am I just doing it because I know that I'm going to have warm fuzzies inside? Now, obviously, if we're following this line of thought that every person acts in only their self-interest, then it's pretty obvious how that can quickly lead a society down a path towards collapse and can keep people from making the sacrifices necessary to create a better world. But I'm curious, Kellen, kind of what your thoughts are, your opinions are on the idea of egoism versus altruism and whether true altruism is possible. Yeah, this is actually something, Corey, you and I discussed the other night, and that's when we were asking all these philosophical questions. <laughs> and I think a lot of it just depends on what your parameters are for altruism. Like, if there can be absolutely no benefit whatsoever to you, then maybe it's not a reality. I think of like a mother who sacrifices so much, maybe even puts herself in harm's way to provide a better outcome for her daughter. Like in that case, it was to her own detriment and she was doing it out of this complete love for her daughter. But if you're going to say like, ah, it doesn't count as altruism because she gained some sense of satisfaction in seeing or believing that it would make her daughter happier. Then it's like almost like saying you'd have to have the ability to perform an action without a motive. And with crime or with anything else, there's always means, motive, and opportunity. So anyways, we, we could talk about that a lot. But I think it's really interesting the point that you bring up. And as all of these different psychological factors and, and, and barriers to confronting collapse are now circling around in my head, I can see how it can be so difficult to get somebody else to change. For example, let's say I'm an activist who confronts the CEO of a manufacturing company and says, you are dumping dangerous chemicals into the water and you need to stop. Well, first of all, the CEO has this egoism that you're talking about, wants to take care of himself and, and do the things that are going to benefit and profit himself personally. So there's that barrier to overcome. And then the CEO goes out and asks, hey, are we really causing a problem here? And, you know, some sources say yes, some say no. But because of confirmation bias, the CEO is like, oh, somebody told me we're not causing a problem. Great. And then they go out and test the fish in the water to see if they have dangerous chemicals in them. They pull up a few fish, see that they don't have any dangerous chemicals and say, hey, look, there's no problem. When really the fish that had the dangerous chemicals are all at the bottom of the lake, there's survivorship bias. Right. And then, and, and we could keep going. We could just list one after another and another. And usually you get these situations where there are multiple of these barriers standing in your way. And then here I am as the activist who sees that, you know, gosh, what I'm doing here isn't going to make any difference whatsoever. I can't have an impact. And I get that sense of futility that we talked about. And so there are multiple layers here of 
the way people's brains work and, and just natural human tendencies that all pile on to make it so that we don't make change in a positive direction. And of course, there are competing factors like altruism, for example, that can help us overcome those things. I also think a future episode, Corey, we could address each of these and, and how to counteract them. We talked a little bit about persuasiveness and some things you can do. There's some ways that you can kind of disarm people when they put their guard up and, and they are defensive against whatever you're about to tell them. And that can help break down some of those barriers and build some trust and get them to listen to what you're about to say. But it takes a lot of concentrated effort and it is a bit of an uphill battle. You know, referring back to the idea of altruism and whether or not it can truly exist under whatever technical parameters you want to put it. To me, I just think, who cares, right? It sounds like a win-win when I can do something nice for somebody and I can feel good about it as well. There doesn't always have to be a sacrifice necessarily. I think if enough people got actual satisfaction from helping others genuinely, recognized that feeling and did it more often, the world would be a better place. And this goes back to, again, your idea when you mentioned futility. And I do think that as collapse progresses and so many of our actions do seem futile, I think the ones that we can choose to do deliberately that will impact other people positively are always worth doing. Maybe it sounds super cheesy and that's okay, but I am the type of person that, that does feel like Maybe nothing else I do matters, but if I can make one person laugh or one person smile, there is satisfaction and purpose behind that. Or one starfish. Yeah, just throw that one starfish back in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Super cliche here. But anyway, this all has really concrete application in life. Whether we're talking about collapse or anything else, I hope that by talking about it here, we're all able to recognize these biases in ourselves that we're able to overcome some of these barriers and that we're able to help others overcome these barriers as well. And hopefully without too much criticism or judgment, it's really easy to just say that person is ignorant or that person is obstinate. There's a lot of different adjectives we could use for that person in the way that they're reacting to something that they're hearing or something that we're saying. But the truth is, as outlined in this episode, it is human nature to cope with information in certain ways and it takes a while and the right set of tools to break down those barriers. And hopefully we as communicators of this type of information are willing to take the time to learn and overcome those. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.